of you, you older children, to turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2. You know, I notice I didn't have uh, Jeff read Ezra chapter 2. Uh, he was relieved after he looked at it. Uh, that would be uh, a great undertaking. He'd rather be out in the forest cutting down trees. Ezra chapter 2. And uh, sort of passage that uh, many times expository preachers like to skip. If you just glance through there, you can see why. Again, as we said last week, these are a list of names that parents are not to be calling their children, right? Uh, you can f- uh, might find some unique ideas for naming your baby, but uh, Gazam, verse 40, 48, has kind of a certain ring to it, doesn't it? That, so if you're one of, you know, Drew, you need another child, maybe Gazam is the name for it. So think about that. All right. But other than that, you wonder why God took space in the Bible to give us this long list of unpronounceable names, right? And it's doubly hard to understand because God put essentially the same list again in Nehemiah chapter 7. These aren't just uh, the sort of chapters you spend rapturous hours in during your quiet time. But since all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, we should not automatically skip these portions of God's word, but rather... We need to try to figure out why did God put them in the Bible? Why did Ezra include this list here? Well, perhaps there are several reasons. Lists may legitimize the uh, uh, land rights after the return from the exile. It may distinguish true Israelites from the Samaritans and show in the face of uh, Tetaniah's uh, challenge in chapter 5. We'll get there in due time. And uh, those who were authorized by Cyrus to return and to rebuild the temple. But also the author and his readers were concerned about the continuity of this community with the pre-exilic Jewish nation. And it was important to show that this community, though it was small and weak, continued God's plan for Israel. Now this chapter however uninviting it may seem, is a monument to God's care and to Israel's vitality. The thousands of homecomers are not just lumped together. Uh, sometimes we just kind of say, you know, the children of Israel. You know, they're all just put into one group. But here you have them related to local groups and family circles, which in a sense humanizes their society, and orientates an individual. And for the people's part, their tenacious memory of places and relationships is still strong after two generations in exile. It showed a fine refusal to be robbed of either of their past or of their future. And the fundamental motive for this careful grouping was not social but religious. 
In this new opportunity for Israel to live up to its calling, every priest must have his credentials and every member too. In the close of the chapter, it shows the restored nation orderly, structured and ready for its main purpose, and that was namely worship. And so bringing together the various strands of these themes, the lesson for us from this list is that God is faithful to his chosen people to discipline them for their sins and to restore them and so that we might faithfully be God's people as well. Last week we mentioned there are no mistakes in the Bible. We said there are some problems. Now, we come to again to one of those problems. And I think we're going to have to deal with it here before we get too far into our message. So we'll just get right after that first that problem. Uh, that one of the portions of Scripture here is probably the most often attacked by atheists, Muslims, Bible bashers. And they say this proves that the Bible is not the inerrant words of God because of two apparent contradictory lists of the numbers of those who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra chapter 2, we find one list that's similar in many ways to the one found in Nehemiah chapter 7. There are also some obvious differences, and it's these different numbers that are given rise to the attacks on the Bible itself being as being the inerrant word of God, caused many Christians to doubt the truth of our our Bible. And there have been many attempts to reconcile these two different numbers, uh, but most of them fall short of an adequate explanation. Unfortunately, most Christian apologists and books usually end up with the stated position, well, this was just one of many scribal errors in the Hebrew text. And the only the originals were the inspired, so uh, this was just one of those scribal errors. And the end result is they cave in to the Bible mockers and they side with their view, and there is no inerrant Bible in any language on the earth today, according to them. But in Ezra chapter 2 and in Nehemiah chapter 7, there are about 33 family units that appear in both lists, and the Israelites returning from Babylon to Judea. And of these 33 family units listed in Ezra and Nehemiah, 19 of the family units are identical, while 14 show, we'll call some discrepancies in the number of members within the family units. One prominent and yet sad, typical Christian apologist offers the usual lame expression explanation of scribal errors, and an answer to why both Ezra 2, verse 64, and Nehemiah 7, verse 66, agree with the total for the uh, congregation of 42,360, yet the, when you add the numbers up, they don't, they don't add up. And Ezra has about 29,818, and Nehemiah has 31,089. So he says, Well, the original text must have had the correct totals, but somewhere along the line of transmission, a scribe made an error in one of the lists, and he changed the total in others, the others so that they would match without first totaling up the numbers of the families in each list. Now, there is a suggestion that a later scribe, then copying out these lists, purposely put down the totals for the whole assembly, which because it was later would be would been larger 
Now, I'm not going to take time to give you a detailed explanation of this, but I just want to focus on at least a part of this reason. And there is human error involved. Now, do you believe that there are mistakes in the Bible? Well, we say, no, we, don't, we have a Bible that's pure, that's, that has no mistakes. But does God record accurately mistakes that were made? Consider this, Ezra chapter 2 and verse 1, we have a statement that indicates that the number found in Ezra's list is a true number of those who made up different groups who left Babylon and journeyed to Jerusalem. And the census in Ezra is an accurate number. It reads in chapter 2 verse 1, Now these are the children of the province that went out of captivity, and those which had been carried away from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and carried away unto Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, every one into his city. And yet when we go to Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 5, the list that it was not accurate, not the true number, we read these important words of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 7 verse 5 says, And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up the first, and found written therein. Nehemiah is merely reporting the numbers that had been erroneously written register that he found, but the true numbers are given by inspiration of God in Ezra chapter 2. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think God recorded in his word things that are not true? Well, I think I can think of a few. In Psalm 14, verse 1, he said, there is no God. Is that true? But it's in the Bible. How about, uh, say ye not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast the devil, John 8, 48. How about Nehemiah 6, 5 through 7, where it says itself, he read, Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written, it was reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, but thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, and which mayest be their king, and thou hast also appointed prophets to preach thee in, of thee in Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now, that letter, what was written in that letter was not true. We'll get there when we study Nehemiah, okay? And we'll understand that better. But that letter, what was written there was not true, but it's in the Bible. And neither was what was written in the register that Nehemiah found in Nehemiah chapter 7. And so this, in part, I think explains why the two lists are significantly different from each other. One contains the true numbers, while the other was an er erroneously recorded by fallible man. But God puts it in His Word, and he, it does explain this, but it upholds the doctrine of inerrancy of the Scripture. I firmly believe in the inerrancy of the King James Bible and the Hebrew texts that underlie the magnificent translation. And all the Hebrew texts read the same in both Ezra and Nehemiah. And I do not believe God makes mistakes nor allows scribal errors in His preserved Word. There has to be a way of explaining these apparent contradictions, and I merely offer this brief explanation as being one of those ways. Uh, certainly more could be said on that. But let's move on to the lessons from this list. 
What can we learn from a list of names? Well, first of all, I believe we can learn that God is faithful. We learn about God's faithfulness. God is faithful to His chosen people, to discipline for their sins and to restore them in His time. This chapter is a monument to God's care. He's led this sinful nation into captivity and now He leads them back into the land and just as He promised through the prophets. And during the siege of Jerusalem, God had told Jeremiah to redeem His family ancestral property in Ananoth as a a witness. He said as the houses and fields and vineyards should be possessed again in his land. Jeremiah 32. Ezra's list records 128 men from the village of Ananoth returning to the land. And so this list underscores what we saw last week, and that is the return to the land came about because the Lord stirred the heart of a pagan king King Cyrus to fulfill his word through Jeremiah. Now God's faithfulness is the main banner to write above this list. That's the the heading that you should put. God is faithful. And I think there are three things that spell this out in more detail. Number one, God chose a people. God chose Israel, those descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be his people. And Moses told the Israelites, And the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. And he goes on to tell them that it was not because of anything special in them, but rather because of God's sovereign oath to their forefathers. And then he says, Know ye therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. These verses are foundational to the understanding of why we have a list of names here in Ezra chapter 2. Ancestry was essential to being a Jew, and being a Jew was essential to being a part of a covenant nation. Even the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants, uh, uh, and probably not, or probably not native Jews, but foreigners who brought, uh, were brought in to do more than just menial tasks. But accepting the covenant of circumcision, they would be included in Israel. But the point still stands that ancestry was important. The 652 who could not prove their ancestry were singled out there in verses 59 and 60. Apparently given the same standing as the circumcised foreigners, but they lacked legitimate grounds for claiming the land that had been parceled out by Joshua. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, the Jews had taken their ancestry too far. It led them into pride with regard to the Gentiles and to the false notion that a birth pedigree was sufficient for a right standing before God. Is that true? It's because you have a pedigree of Christianity in your family. Does that give you right standing before God? Certainly not. Just because mom and dad or grandparents are saved doesn't mean you're saved. And so John the Baptist even confronted them in Luke chapter 3 and verse 8 and said, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. 
And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Even Jesus told Nicodemus the important truth that being born a Jew physically was was, uh, not enough. But you needed to be born again. Born again spiritually through repentance and faith in Christ. And Paul makes the same point that it's those who are in faith of the faith of Abraham who are his true children, Romans and Galatians. And, and so the evidence that we are God's chosen people is not our physical birth, but rather the evidence of a new birth, which is through faith in Christ. And for this reason, Peter gives a list of moral qualities that we need to add to our faith and includes rather, wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And so this registry here of Jewish ancestry was a type of the registry that really matters. The Lamb's Book of Life. That's the book, that's the list that really matters. Is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? Make sure it's there. So God chose a people, but secondly, God disciplines his people. Now, the Babylonian captivity was God's faithful discipline of his erring people. He had warned them that he would scatter them among the nations if they persisted in their disobedience. And God uses the wicked Babylonians to discipline his people and to show them the emptiness of idolatry. Israel had not faithfully kept the Sabbath. And so God expelled them from the land for 70 years of Sabbaths. And he did that to teach them the importance of obedience to the word. Brother Delighton read in Hebrews chapter 12, in our scripture reading, in verse 8, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons In other words, if you claim to be a Christian and you live a deliberate disobedience to God without any negative consequences, well, you're in bigger trouble than you realize. You may not be a true Christian at all. There's a difference between calling yourself a Christian and being one. And one mark of a true child of God is that when he sins, God faithfully disciplines him. But, and this is, but this point is crucial here. God does not discipline us to make us pay for our sins. Christ paid for our sins on the cross. Rather, He disciplines us that we might share His holiness. In other words, restoration is the goal of God's discipline of His true children. And so we come to the third aspect here, and that is God restores in his time. God is faithful to restore his chosen people in his time. When the 70 years were up, God restored his people to the promised land. The chapter is very specific. It's a detailed record of God's faithfulness to his covenant people. He knows how long his people need to be under his rod of discipline, and he's able to restore them when the time is right. And you should notice here that God did not just wipe out the consequences of their sins. Even when he restored them, they did not come back to beautiful cities and homes or to cultivated fields waiting to be harvested. 
No, they came back to piles of rubble, to fields overgrown with weeds. And it required a lot of time, a lot of work to rebuild these devastated cities and to get the farmlands back into shape. And when God forgives our sin and restores us spiritually, He does not usually remove the consequences of what we did to incur that discipline. If you destroyed your family through sinful anger, you may not get your family back when God restores you to a right relationship with Him. If you ran up huge debts because of your impulsive spending, repentance doesn't mean, well, God's going to make all your creditors evaporate and your debts are all going to be paid if you get right with God. No, there's going to be consequences to that. You may have to work many years to repay your debts. And you also notice that those returning to the land were the children and grandchildren of those brought, who brought on the captivity of their sins. The ones returning could have been bitterly complaining. Well, you know, it's not fair that we should have to rebuild which was what was destroyed because of our sinful parents. And that kind of attitude reflects a rebellious heart toward the Lord And our attitude should always be in submission to the Lord in all of His dealings with us and gratitude that He doesn't give us what we really deserve. If Thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And so God's faithfulness is the banner over this long list of those returning to the land. But the other factor is the people's response. And so we come to number two, and that is our response. Our response to God's faithfulness. What is our response to Him being faithful? When God graciously gives us an opportunity to begin again, after we've sinned, His grace should motivate us to obedience. Notice three aspects of our faithfulness. First of all, there should be living faithfully implies continuity. One reason this list is here is to demonstrate the current generation of Jews and their historical continuity with the pre-exilic Jewish community that God had chosen. It was important to show that this community, though it was small, it was weak, continued God's plan for Israel. Uh, They were now to carry on God's purposes and hand off to their children and to their grandchildren a vision of those purposes and for their identity as His people. And the very fact that a person says, well, I'm the son of so-and-so. Uh, I, I'm, the, uh, I'm, I'm related to this person. And I could go back many generations uh, and say, you know, I'm, I'm related to them. Maybe the fact that uh, he's living on a, uh, dwelling on a family inheritance. That again is a graphic picture of God's faithfulness. And I'm afraid that continuity is a rather strange concept for most today. Unlike many of our grandparents who grew up and lived the rest of their lives in the home that they were born in, we change homes and geographical locations very frequently, don't we? Family ties usually don't affect many of those decisions. Now, Sometimes they do. 
The Jews could trace their ancestry back for centuries. One modern traveler in Middle East said that on one occasion while he was in the Arab encampment, an Arab got up and related the history of his forebear uh, back to 40 generations. And the others were oblivious to that thing. Most of us could not name our eight or more maybe due to divorce or some uh, remarriage there. How many of you could name your eight grandparents, great-grandparents? Let me say it that way. Your eight great-grandparents. You'd have to think kind of hard, maybe even look up some documents, and you could probably come up with the names, right? But just to name them. That'd be pretty hard for us today. But that was an important thing for them, You know, it's a rare thing in America to have two or three generations where families have not been fragmented by divorce, often several times. And there's great value in an effort required to preserve continuity in life, both through committed relationships and the handing down of items that have meaning and memories. That's kind of an interesting thing to talk about, handing down items, you know, when... When we moved from various place to various place, we always said, well, we've got to get rid of some of this stuff. We can't take it all with us. Yeah, but mom, dad, I want that. And so the kids, they pick up things here, and it's happened in your family too. But you know, it might be a, a quilt, a grandmother's quilt that's special. I happen to have... Some Bibles. Some special Bibles. Most of them are for my parents. A number of them. Of course, the continuity should be emphasized that's based on God's Word. We should hand off truth. Not just books. Not just things. Not just quilts. Not just uh, you know a tool that Granddad used. We need to hand down the truth of God's Word, and we need to preserve it in our families from generation to generation. Something that's going to last for eternity. Not something that's going to rust or break or deteriorate. So living faithfully implies continuity. Also living faithfully implies community. These Jews did not return to the land as so many individuals to erect their fences and gated communities where they could come and go for years without even knowing their neighbors. They had a sense of community built on their common ancestry and their faith. And while they all lived in their perspective, respective cities and homes, Jerusalem, of course, was the center and where they went up at least three times a year to worship God together, they had more of a cooperative society rather than a competitive society. But you know what? As Americans, we have individualistic and competitive society. You can see it in our driving habits. Not going to let him get around me. We speed up when someone wants to pass us. In Poland, they move over to the side and they pass three abreast on a two-lane road. Well, that'd be an adventure, wouldn't it? 
But they co- cooperate, don't they? We compete. When it comes to our spiritual lives, we tend to read the Bible in individualistic terms, not in a corporate body of Christ term. We say, what is this for me? Instead of, what is this for us? For example, when we read Ephesians and Colossians about the new man, we think of each person's new identity in Christ. You know, many people think that, you know, Paul's talking about a universal invisible church without any, con- without any uh, you know, it's just everybody all together. No. Paul wrote to churches, individual local churches, Ephesians and Colossians, and he's talking to an individual in a local church putting on the new man. And while there is a legitimate sense in which our individual bodies are temples of God, according to 1 Corinthians 6.19, there's also a sense in which our church is the body of Christ in this location, and we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And to live faithfully to God, we need to recover the biblical sense of community with other believers. Living faithfully implies community. And then thirdly, living faithfully implies commitment. To give up our comfortable, familiar surroundings and pack up and move across a thousand miles of hostile desert to a land that has been devastated by war, that took commitment. It wasn't convenient but those who made the move could not sing the songs, the songs of God in Babylon, according to Psalm 137. They longed for Jerusalem and the temple where God's glory had been known, and so they were willing to do whatever was required to see God enthroned among His people in His holy place. Their commitment could be seen in three strands. There was commitment to worship. The whole chapter centers on the return of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the doorkeepers. You read through the chapter, you find them listed there. It shows how Israel was organized for this purpose of worship. While there's a proper place for spontaneity in worship, there's also a need for proper order and planning. And our aim in worship is not just to get everybody feeling happy. It's not to evoke emotion, but to meet with the living God, to show forth His glory. The fact that the priests could not confirm their ancestry was considered unclean and prevented them from serving. And that shows that holiness is essential in proper worship. To be living in the world lives all week, or living as the world lives all week and then pop into church for a few minutes and worship, that's an abomination to God. All week long our lives should bring glory to God through holy thoughts and words and deeds and then our public worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day, is an overflow of our gratitude and obedience to Him. This commitment to worship is also a commitment to service. The list here shows us the variety of service, the priests and the Levites and the singers and the doorkeepers and the temple servants and each having their duty to perform for the smooth functioning of the whole. Some were more visible, they were up front. Others were kind of behind the scenes, but they were no less important. And even so, in this local church, every member has been given a spiritual 
gift to exercise in serving the Lord? The question is, are we exercising the gift that God's given us? And then there's a commitment to giving. You know, the first thing these people did, according to this chapter here, Ezra chapter 2, well, the first things to do, this text records, was to go to the place where the house of the Lord had been, and they offered gifts willingly to see it restored. You look down there in verses 68 and 69, and some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in this place. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work threescore and one thousand drams of gold and five thousand pounds of silver and one hundred priest garments. The record of the animals there in the previous verses tells us that some of the returning people were doing pretty good. Some of them had horses. 736 of them. And his horse in that day was kind of like a Cadillac or, uh, you know, a fancy car today. Some of them didn't have horses. They didn't have any animals. But they, it tells us here they gave according to their ability, which implies that the wealthier people gave more, the poor gave as they could. And even so, Paul instructs us to put aside and give as to the Lord has prospered us. And he commends the Macedonians who gave not only according to their ability, but beyond their ability of their own accord, begging Paul for the privilege of giving. And my wife always accuses me of wanting to pay more for something that it's really worth or what it's really asking. You know, if it's uh, if it's a hundred dollar item, no, let me pay you two hundred. No, that's actually something that uh, you know Paul was saying, or the Macedonians were saying. You know, we don't want to give just this; we want to give more. Now, can God use a simple list of unknown names to spur us on to growth in godliness? And since it is in the word of God, which he promised not to return void unto him, I trust we can learn from this list. First of all, this morning, are you one of his chosen ones? I would say make sure of it. Someone might ask, how can a person know that he is one of God's elect? Well, the answer is simply this. Answer this question. Have you truly put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and is there evidence of that fact in your life? If you've trusted Christ, and there's evidence of that in your life, you're one of His. And secondly, are you experiencing and submitting to God's faithful discipline in your life? Now, this could be just kind of some minor things that you experience every day, or it could be some major trial. But all of them are for our learning to train us to share in His holiness as we submit joyfully to Him. And then thirdly, are we seeking to live faithful, faithfully for God? Faithfulness will show itself in continuity and community and commitment to worship, service, and giving. And this chapter is a witness to God's enduring faithfulness to His people. And our response to His faithfulness should be to live faithfully for the glory of God. I think this chapter also shows us that God is 
interested in each one of us as individuals. Again, he could have just said, y'all. That's a southern translation. But he didn't. He said, this person, this person, this person. And he listed all these people. And God is interested in your life this morning as well. Each one of you as an individual. Let's pray. Father in heaven.